Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 27 of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance. We have four of the top compliance practitioners literally across the globe. They include Michael Volkoff, founder and president of the Volkoff Law Group, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor with Affiliated Monitors, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, and Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Quartery Compliance in London. Today we take things in a little bit different direction as we take two topics and have the group debate the two topics between them. The first topic was the recent testimony by Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress together with the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. The second topic was the subpoena issued to Michael Cohen by the Southern District of New York and its fallout. I think you'll find this to be a fascinating exploration of these two topics. Of course, we have rants at the end, and I give a special shout out. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for another episode of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang is Jonathan Armstrong from Quartery Compliance, who's actually in Houston today, so he and I are live. Joined by Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance from Boston, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors from Los Angeles, and Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, joining us today from San Diego. We have a really interesting episode. We're going to try to be a lot more interactive today, so we just hop right into it. Jay, uh, we had a uh, thrilling couple of days of uh, political theater, which is called Congressional Testimony with Mark Zuckerberg. Do you have any uh, takeaways from the Congressional Testimony Theater we saw this week? Yeah, I have, I have a few thoughts to share. I would, first of all, Mr. Zuckerberg uh, acquitted himself quite well and was trained much better than the uh, folks who took the mic several months ago when they were talking about Wells Fargo. Uh, I don't think there are any surprises, but he, uh, he was not flustered. He answered the questions well. I love the line of questioning from Dick Durbin from Illinois when he asked if Mr. Zuckerberg would like it revealed uh, which hotel he stayed in and who he texted. So that was a kind of a interesting way to take a look at uh, the type of information that is shared uh, minute by minute by certain users on the Facebook platform. Uh, a couple other interesting takeaways is that uh, some members of the committee tried to paint um, Facebook as a monopoly, and uh, Zuckerberg came back and said that there are eight to ten other apps out there who do things like Facebook. So if you're looking at Instagram or Snapchat or uh, um, you know Twitter, any of those other uh, platforms, I think, are now going to be opened up to the same scrutiny. And I was even wondering, you know, if you've got Cambridge Analytica doing stuff on Facebook, I wonder what our feeds are like on LinkedIn as well. So my key takeaways here, and and I'd be happy to hear, uh, you know, what what you guys think is uh, Zuckerberg uttered the phrase that Facebook is going to be responsible for the content that it airs. So not only is it a content provider, but it's also a technology platform. So uh, Google, get ready. And uh, I, I, I think that this was a positive move. But uh, as I said in the pre-call, 
I think we're just going to be saddled with more and more testimony, and uh, we need to solve this now before the 2018 elections are upon us. So the the time for uh, feet dragging is is way late, and we need to get into this. We need to get into it now, and I'm sure Jonathan will have something to say from the GDPR perspective. Well, Jonathan, I before have. you start, I think uh, <laughs> Matt wanted to jump in with something for us. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I thought the funniest part uh, for compliance officers, at least, about Zuckerberg's testimony was the photo somebody took over his shoulder to see the notes that he had to for his talking points for Congress. And one of the, the talking points he said, and you can clearly see it in the photo, don't say we already do what GDPR requires. And mm. I think every compliance officer should go and give that note to your CEO because you're probably in the same boat. Um, but I would welcome, actually, Jonathan, your take on this, that I did not watch all the testimony, but my understanding was that a lot of people were sort of tap dancing to the conclusion that the sort of consumer-friendly power GDPR creates for Europeans. Everybody's saying, well, that's mm. kind of what we want, but we're not actually moving to that legislatively over here in the United States. But I think it puts uh, lawmakers in a difficult position because I think Americans are more and more going to say, well, why can't we get it? Europeans have it. It seems to be pretty yeah. cool. But what was your take? No, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, my I have a, a number of thoughts about it. I, I thought it was gripping. I watched a, a considerable chunk of day one. I watched a little bit of day two. Day one, I thought, was a little bit like car crash TV, but you didn't actually ever see the point of impact. I think Jay's right. The, the bit in day two about which hotel did you stay on was almost the only punch that landed. Uh, the analogy I kept going through my head on day one was it's a little bit like, um, uh, apologies in advance to my mother, but it's a, a, the, the nearest analogy was my uh, you know pre-teenage daughters trying to teach uh, their grandmother how to program a remote control or uh, you know program the skybox or whatever. It was, I mean, some of the questions I thought were were, were truly absurd. You know, we had an 84-year-old politician saying, if the platform's free, how on earth are you going to make money? Uh, and it was, you know, whether your sport is cricket or baseball, that was an absolute free hit. You could see Zuckerberg's face light up where he says, advertising revenue. He, he, he resisted, thankfully, saying Dumbo at the end of the, of the answer. But you could see the smile across his face said the same thing. Uh, also, there was um, a really, I thought, terrible exchange about the functionality of WhatsApp, clearly from somebody who has never, ever, ever used WhatsApp. So why would you ask a question about a tool that you've never used, you know, about saying that when I send an email over WhatsApp, well, firstly, you can't, I see an advert for Black Panther, well, you can't because there's no adverts on on WhatsApp and 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 just I, I was I, I don't want to use the word upset but I mean I think I made the prediction a week or so ago that I thought in some respects the UK hearing might be more interesting partly because of GDPR partly because you would expect that UK politicians like Tom Watson who've got technology 
experience over 15 years would would land more punches because they understand the technology better and also i think the i think the really key dilemma for facebook is that obviously they've asked zuckerberg to appear before the uk parliament my understanding is that he has said he is not going to go but he's going to send one of two named individuals instead and my understanding is that these are the guys who know how the system works and that's a very critical decision for Facebook to make, really. Zuckerberg did a good job of saying, that bit I don't understand, let me get my team, get back to you and explain it. Now, in some cases, maybe he ought to have known how bits of it worked, but he at least plausibly could say, I'm the CEO, I'm not the engineering guy. But my understanding is that the two guys he's proposed to take his place in the UK are people who've worked in the engineering function. And that, together with the ongoing criminal investigation from the ICO in the UK, might make a UK hearing very different. So if I bridge across to that very quickly, the Elizabeth Denham, the UK data regulator, is now saying that 33-0 organisations are in scope. As we said, I think, on our last podcast, this is an existing investigation. The ICO has been on the scene uh, at least virtually, for for around about a year or so now with the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. But I think the 30 number, I guess, is surprising people, particularly considering I think only four names of entities cropped up at the hearings in the last two days. Again, that tells me that, that perhaps um, uh, the U- US politicians haven't done the homework they should have done. And of course, the drivers in the UK are going to be, I think, uh, a team of politicians who are much more engaged about technology-related issues, in part because of the Leveson inquiry, where some of the politicians involved uh, tried to bring uh, news media to account in, in, in how they favour different political parties, etc. Another bit of the equation, I think, is the transparency obligations that already exist under current data privacy law. So it's interesting that the search warrant that the ICO obtained is on principle one and principle seven. Principle seven is basically not keeping data secure, sending it to the right person, a wrong person under uh, UK Data Protection Act 98. Uh, Both seven and one come across to GDPR. Principle one is this overriding duty of handling somebody's data in a fair manner. And I think that's going to be where the rubber hits the road here, that even if this, even if it was lawful, even if you had consent from people, was it fair? Was it fair to, to, to rely on privacy policies as your get out of jail card? Now, of course, if the offences were committed, if any, sorry, if any administrative wrongs were committed prior to 25 May 2018, then the maximum penalty in the UK is £500,000. But here's the rub, it seems to me. If any of those practices continue 26th May beyond, and the fairness obligation, remember, is continuing, it's not one-off. So if you have a breach and don't tell people about it, Theoretically, you're being unfair to them on the 26th of May, unless you've told them prior to the 25th of May, if you're still following me. And if that is the case, if that is the case, then the fine for somebody like Facebook jumps from £500,000 to, by my calculations, $1.6 billion. B 
billion with a B. So that's um, obviously to the likes of Matt and Jay, that's pocket change. But I think to most organizations, that <laughs> that is a big jump up from a, a, a trivial number to, to, to Facebook to, to a larger number. Now, I have to stress, of course, that nobody there's criminal proceedings ongoing. It would be wrong to speculate on the outcome of the criminal proceedings. The administrative proceedings will potentially run in parallel, and nobody's saying any wrongdoing as yet, but I think that's more consequential. I agree with you that I think there's an appetite for GDPR. I've seen that in the U.S. press. And I think the other thing that I think you were hinting at, Jay, which seems to me to be even more uh, damaging potentially, is around the world, uh, organizations that like uh, search engines, like social media platforms, have relied on the on the what we call the mere conduit defense. So it's basically saying we're a bit like AT and T in the olden days. We plug caller A into this slot and caller B into this slot. That makes the connection between them, but we only do the connection. We're not liable for any content once we've made that switch, A and B talk to each other. So that mere conduit defense, which was perhaps artificial in the early days of the internet, I think is looking more and more artificial as uh, tech businesses do more and more. And if I was Facebook, I may or may not worry about data privacy law because I suspect in Facebook's defense, they have some really good tools on things like data portability. And, and as Zuckerberg was saying, some of the things that senators were asking for, Facebook already provide, like a, like a data portability tool. But the thing that might worry me more might be my loss of the mere conduit defense. If I then effectively underwrite every bit of content on the platform, that changes my business model significantly. I'm not sure a new data privacy law changes the business model that much. So my prediction would be that around the world, we're going to get these two parallel potential regulatory tidal waves. One, the increase of GDPR's reach and GDPR-like provisions in different jurisdictions. South Korea, Japan, for example, have already got proposals to do that. But the second that I think is even more fascinating from my point of view is the erosion of this mere conduit defense. So saying to people like Facebook, you can no longer say you're like an old-fashioned telco of allowing A and B to speak to each other. You're you're liable potentially for what they say to each other. And and that, I think, would be a game changer for some organizations. You know, I want to jump in with a question that it perhaps starts with an observation. But Matt, I want to pitch this to you as the journalist on our panel. One one of the things that really struck me was the visual difference, the visualization between the grandmothers and grandfathers of our political class uh, that were the senators and U.S. representatives. Uh, their obvious age, their uh, many of them unfamiliarity with some of the basic concepts that. Uh, Jay and Jonathan have talked about, and really the youth, the youthful vigor of not only Mark Zuckerberg, but the uh, the tech economy and Silicon Valley. And I cannot recall uh, a hearing which there was such a stark uh, difference in the ages of our very senior political class 
And the representative who was testifying, not representative, but the person testifying, really representing an age of his technology sector. Anything like that strike you? Uh, well, nothing so glaring, no. Uh, it really it is... It, it, it's just a visually jarring and intellectually, and I suppose even from a policy perspective, it's just jarring how out of their depth most of these senators and congressmen are. Um, it is a reminder that most legislation that gets done in this country, it's done by the staffers, and the staffers are 20s, 30s, 40s, and they probably are closer to the technology that people are talking about. Um, Two kind of sort of examples do come to my mind. Um, one actually isn't so much the difference in generations, but if you think back to 1990 and the allegations against Clarence Thomas by Anita Hill, which called out the kind of sharp gender differences back then, uh, where here was Anita Hill raising these harassment allegations to a panel of all male senators, I believe it was at the time. Um, and the other funny thing that does get closer to the tech economy, so this was in the late 1990s, and I was a tech reporter back then, so I remember this, is that somebody had proposed um, seven lines of code that would allow you to hack into and copy video disks, which were still relatively new back then. And, of course, the video industry hated this idea. Um, but it got to the question of whether or not uh, those six lines of code will send free speech or not, because if you used it, it was a crime under federal law. I think it was the 1996 Telecom Act, but you could say the code and it wasn't much. So there were T-shirts that would go around in the 1990s. And I, I had one It's 97, 98, 99, where um, it became this bizarro kind of world. Here's Congress trying to regulate something out of existence on a business side where everybody in tech knew that you could hack into a DVD in three seconds and mm -hmm. here, have a t-shirt. Here's the seven lines of code that you need. And I had one of those t-shirts because I was a telecom person. Um, it's just, it's bizarre. And certainly it does, you know, I think more broadly, it will shift the political discussion back to what I mentioned before. Like what are the basic principles that people want? What are the core values? And don't get hung up on the tech stuff which the lawmakers yeah. don't understand anyways. But, I mean, the, the, the basic principles behind the GDPR, I think a lot of Americans would look at it and say, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Why don't we have it? And that puts the tech sector, I think, on the back foot. It's hard to argue with those values. But, but Matt, from my point of view, if, you're, if you know that there's a 50-year, 5-0-year age gap between you and the guy you're questioning about the technology that the guy you're questioning owns... And you have a bank of staffers there who understand the technology. What makes you not ask them how it works? Is that just is that just arrogance, or is that just thinking I can I can talk my way out of this, or is this them genuinely thinking that they know how stuff like WhatsApp works? So I don't need to invest the time. I don't need to invest the precious five minutes to find out whether I'm right or not. They've got yeah. this. Who knows, to be honest? I, I suspect that a fair number of them had their questions drafted by staff in advance. Mm. And then Mark Zuckerberg would give a response, and then they start to riff a little bit with him. And as soon as you get into actual thought and conversation with the lawmaker, that's a dangerous thing to do. To do. Right. And they wind up um, looking unprepared because they probably are unprepared. So, Jay, I have a question for you as our uh, resident recovering screenwriter. 
How did you think the story Zuckerberg told played? Did it have the necessary elements to communicate not only a positive um, view of, of Mr. Zuckerberg personally, but of Facebook and indeed the industry he represents? Uh, great question, Tom. I, I think he came off as very credible. Um, he was really not argumentative, um, respectful when he needed to be, uh, saying that he would get back when he needed to be. But, you know, I, I think the chief uh, things that he brought to the table, which, you know, kudos to their crisis management team, whoever prepped him and who got him ready, is that uh, in the past he's probably been looked at as immature and, um, you know, a little bit smug and a little bit, you know, he knows better than everyone else. And I think at this point he really brought the contrition to the table. Uh, he said multiple times that he expects Facebook to be regulated. And, um, you know, unfortunately, like we said before, uh, you know, and what Matt was just saying, it's going to fall to a group of octanagerians and septagerians who are going to have to carry forward on this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really need to have uh, more of a technologically adept core who are going to be able to come up with the fixes and be able to not only patch this system, but uh, provide for the needed uh, identity security that we need going forward. I, I, I was talking to somebody in this space who said that most CEOs, it's relatively easy to prep them for, let's say, three to five minutes of questions. And, uh, and of course, the news agenda is nearly always three-minute pieces now. So you, so you see CEO in crisis, the news interview will be three minutes as part of a wider package. And, and I guess my question is, uh, the, the, the way in which certainly the, the hearings were phrased, because each, each questioner only had three minutes-ish, what Zuckerberg was able to do effectively, certainly on day one, was just almost repeat the three-minute package each time, which was like, you know, contrition. There are lessons to learn. We will learn them. And any difficult question was answered, I'll have my team get back to you. And it was almost like he only ever needed those four answers or whatever, and he only needed his three- to five-minute package as long as he had it on a loop. You could have almost, you know... We're in a great studio here. I'm sure they could have made us a three-minute loop of that that you could have just pressed under the table. And is that is that something, Matt and Jay particularly, that, that needs to be addressed in, in the US political system? Would you have been better off with, with two or three uh, uh, politicians who knew what they were talking about? And there was evidently some of those in the room having 25 minutes each rather than... Uh, the ignorant and the knowledgeable having three minutes each. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say. Um, I think that would be an excellent There's a first. idea, but uh, in the real world, that's just, it's not going to happen. Um, right. You know, I, I suppose that possibly you could uh, improve the situation by not having cameras in the room, which I I'm not opposed to, I know the Supreme Court, for example, 
bars cameras because they don't want people to start looking for a highlight reel with Supreme Court arguments. Mm -hmm. I I think that's not a point to be dismissed, and it's probably one that would help us in legislative debates, too. Um, Then again, it's worth remembering, on the vast majority of hearings, uh, none of this. uh, I mean, they never see any light of day. There's no press. There is no TV. You might might watch it on C-SPAN 2. So most hearings are not like what we just saw. Um, I did have one other point I wanted to raise since we're all talking about Mark Zuckerberg and his points. Um, and Jay, you jarred my memory when you mentioned Zuckerberg said he expects that Facebook eventually will be regulated. Might we point out that when lawmakers in California not long ago were debating a California data protection rule, which scared the bejesus out of the tech industry, there were many tech industry people, including those at Facebook, who put the kibosh on that mm. in Sacramento. Um, but what I think is interesting is while all this is going on, we should not forget that over in the House of Representatives, they are kicking around uh, a bipartisan approach to a national breach disclosure law. Uh, there was a hearing on that, I want to say, back in uh, February, maybe early March, that you know, you could see that there were some clear tensions between federal lawmakers who wanted one blanket uh, disclosure rule, which kind of sort of makes sense, except that there are many skeptics who think that it will be a Republican-leaning anti-consumer bill. So various state attorneys general are all saying, no, 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 we want to be able to protect our consumers in our states. Um there is some draft legislation floating around. It's not actually been filed. There's no actual bill. But um, I will be curious to see how Zuckerberg's newfound openness to being regulated would actually translate into some legislative pushes that are happening in the House mm-hmm. of Representatives. We could actually see a breach disclosure law get proposed in this country. Crazy things have happened. So I'd like to pitch out a question to the group. Uh, and it really follows uh, uh, your points there, Matt, which is uh, regulation on Facebook. And if there's regulation on Facebook and Facebook responds uh, to a new law in the United States and responds to GDPR law by putting in place an appropriate level of GDPR compliance or U.S. data privacy law compliance, and then takes those same concepts and applies it to their third-party representatives, their vendors, and you start to see a business solution to GDPR privacy, to U.S. legislation privacy, to state of California privacy, will we see the type of cascading into the tech business sector of data privacy compliance that many of us have observed in the FCPA or broader anti-corruption world uh, over the past 10 years? And will that be something that could actually drive privacy forward? So, Jonathan, let me just start with uh, you from your uh, EU uh, GDPR UK perspective. I I think that's a great observation, Tom, and I I think the answer must be yes. I mean, it seems to me that that already, if I'm involved in the ad agency, I'm wherever I am, I'm going to be wanting to look at my GDPR compliance PDQ because if it is going to be a term of me connecting with Facebook or dealing with them in any way that I'm having to give auditable warranties that I'm GDPR compliant, then you will want to do that work now. And we heard in the testimony that that Facebook is going to build this big audit team and are going to go and physically look at premises and check that people are doing the right things. 
And to pick up one of Matt's points, I think the challenge now for the US, if you are looking at things like national data breach laws, is timing. You know, GDPR says that in most cases, breaches will have to be reported to a regulator in 72 hours. The last time I heard, the proposals in the US might be hovering around 28 days. So even if you implement national data breach legislation, the big question then for US legislators is, do they stick with the 28 days that they were previously comfortable with? But then their law looks visibly weaker than the European law, which says 72 hours. So, you know, if if their new regulation is meant to be the best and state-of-the-art, then does that push the US down the 72-hour route as well? And we all know that breaches reported in 72 hours are nearly always serve you know, little purpose because information isn't, isn't um, uh, you, you know, you haven't got the full state of information, et cetera, et cetera. And many of us thought that 72 days was was the wrong time limit to apply and 28 days might have been uh, you know a better limit but will there be this sort of uh uh this face saving thing that in the current climate the US will have to have legislation that's as tough as Europe and and will that alter US domestic legislation as a result Matt Jonathan uh well I I think that yes it Will, there's a couple of things to unpack here. Um, First, we should remember, you know, pushing out privacy policies to your third parties is very similar to what a lot of government contractors must already do if they're trying to bid on U.S. contracts now with uh, what is known as DFARS compliance on cybersecurity. Now, security is not necessarily the same as privacy, although sometimes it is, but Yes, if you are a prime contractor now bidding on a DOD contract, you absolutely must be demonstrating that you are pushing cybersecurity policies and efforts down to your third parties. Now, spoiler alert, nobody is anywhere near the desired state that the government would like to see, but it's out there. So if you're already doing this sort of jujitsu anyways on data security and third parties, you might as well be thinking long and hard about doing it for data privacy as well. Um, and then secondly, to Jonathan's point, the difference between three days and 28 days, if you are a global company, so you're going to have to disclose the breach in Europe, and then it will be worldwide news, and you're not disclosing it yeah. to the U.S., that 24 days will be an eternity. Mm-hmm. And on a practical level, like, who cares what the U.S. deadline is going to be? Yeah. It's going to be 72 hours, and everybody knows that. Yeah. So we might as well get with the program. So, Jay, from the Hollywood perspective, anything uh, along those lines? Um, just that um, I, I think I agree with the issue that um, – we are not going to be able to <clears throat> respond quick enough. And, um, you know, that 28 days sounds like an eternity. Uh, we've seen issues here going back to the Sony data breach and things like that. That I think that the number one thing that we, um, you know, are not being very uh, forthright with is the fact that uh, it's not about if companies get hacked, but it's when. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
we have it's it's no longer a matter of our um having our credit cards stolen by um I don't know who it was, whether it was Home Depot or Target. It doesn't really matter. But I think now it's really becoming an issue of uh, civil liberty, that you are now having not only your data stolen, but it's being reconstituted to push political uh, and, uh, political agendas on you mm. that you don't want to hear. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think we all need to turn a corner. I don't think it's about just placing the blame on Facebook or one or two providers, but uh, we have to understand that we are now living in a brave new digital war world, and we need to be more transparent about what's happening, and we have to come up with solutions that are going to allow people to uh, respond in a timely manner and then allow people to opt out if they so desire. Jay, that's a great point about Sony because it, it really caps what I wanted to end this section of our uh, today's podcast on, which is uh, data protection also uh, encompass, encompasses data, uh, excuse me, data privacy also encompasses data protection. And Sony's the best example. Uh, certainly, uh, we saw the CEO have to resign because of embarrassing emails that were released. And so it's in companies direct financial and reputational interest on the twin issues of data privacy and data prevention. But uh, as much fun as this has been, uh, I am uh, equally interested to turn to uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Kelly and Volkoff uh, because we're going to go with uh, some of the more uh, recent political news. So, Matt, I'm going to pitch it over to you, and uh, why don't you get the uh, ball rolling? Yeah, sure. So um, the recent political news, of course, is the continuing uh, troubles that the Trump administration and Donald Trump particularly, uh, President Trump, what he is having with the Bob Mueller investigation. And finally, we saw something that I had been waiting for for about six or eight weeks. I started thinking about the implications of if the Stormy Daniels accusations somehow spilled into the Russia probe that Bob Mueller has been conducting. Um, and now that we see that it has, because for whatever reason, Bob Mueller referred some information he came across about Stormy Daniels and other payoffs that Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, had made. He referred that to the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, and then they raided Michael Cohen's offices earlier this week. So here are my questions. I have so many questions about this, but I'll try and narrow them down to the most important ones. Um, how would a special counsel investigating Russian collusion in the 2016 elections, how would he come across information pertaining to a payoff to a porn actress who had an affair with the president. Um, and, you know, so now I'm starting to wonder if information about Stormy Daniels, is that what the Russians may have had on the president in the first place? Uh, I know that there are also allegations that maybe the Trump organization had been involved in money laundering with the Russians. And what fits the facts? This is entirely speculative right now, but we know that the president did have a fling with Stormy Daniels. All evidence uh, from Stormy Daniels' lawyers and her lawsuit against the president indicate 
She had some sort of records of this, maybe text messages, maybe photos. Um, her lawyer seems to say that they've got some very explicit evidence that Donald Trump was involved with her. Um, so if the Russians knew about that, they could have used that to blackmail CEO of the Trump Organization to keep the money laundering going long before anybody thought, Let's ha- how about I run for president? And then what about all this Russia collusion? All of that could have been separate. But once this came to pass, then suddenly the Russians might have been thinking, well, now it's not so much they are colluding with Donald Trump, and maybe they did not collude with him. Maybe they already knew we have this guy in blackmail with Stormy Daniels. Now let's intercede with Facebook to get him into office so we can even have him buy a few more short hairs. That fits. That, that fits what we know so far. Um, but again, you know, like what would the crime be that Robert Mueller encountered in his investigation that he could not prosecute? So he would have to hand it off to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, something about payoffs? Maybe there's more than one woman that has been paid off. There are some allegations around that. Maybe there's allegations of witness tampering. Um, I would not necessarily put that past Michael Cohen, who does not present well to the public as a uh, thoughtful and genteel member of the bar. Uh, he comes across as uh, one step out of the Sopranos, in my opinion. But um, so, you know, we've got questions there. And then the other thing that I've been thinking about is, let's say the shoe drops with Bob Mueller. You know, he puts out a report. He tries to, you know, draws up articles of impeachment, gives them to Congress. He tries to file an indictment against the sitting president. Whatever happens, how would Congress react? And this is where there's another item out in the news this week that is worth people considering. Of all things. It comes from a right-wing radio um, and online radio blogger. His name is Eric Erickson. He runs the Resurgent, and he's a uh, talk radio show, talk radio host down in Atlanta. Um, Eric Erickson had a great, fascinating conversation with an unnamed Republican congressman. Uh, they were walking through a Safeway supermarket not long ago, where this <laughs> Republican congressman, whoever he may be, went on a profanity-laced tirade against Donald Trump for basically screwing it up for the Republican Party, which otherwise would have had a great opportunity to pass all sorts of legislation, but all we're doing is talking about scandals. Uh, but this Republican congressman, in between the swear words and the expletives, did point out the key is that if there are articles of impeachment referred to Congress from Mueller, well, they go to the Judiciary Committee. All of the Judiciary Committee leaders, you know, the Republicans are in the majority there. They're the ones who would decide what are we going to do with this. They are all waiting for their primaries to pass in this election season. And as soon as they do, by late summer, they won't have to worry, I'm going to go after the president, I'm going to be attacked by some pro-Trump extremist on my right side, so I can't support impeachment right now. Once that primary is over, this whole conversation goes away. And therefore, suddenly, the Judiciary Committee Republicans could, if they wanted, say, there's no downside to me going after this guy who's pulling the rest of us down. We're going to lose the House from him. So yeah, article of impeachment, I vote A or yay. Um, you know, it was a very interesting point to raise that that might be how impeachment starts to move forward. Um, one last point that I think is also interesting 
just to show you how sordid and conflicted this whole mess is, is um, so Bob Mueller finds out some sort of criminal allegations about payoffs against Michael Cohen, refers it to the U.S. Uh, district attorney in or U.S. attorney in New York. Well, the U.S. attorney in New York right now is in an acting capacity, Jer- uh, Jeff Berman, and he may or may not be uh, formally appointed uh, by the president and Congress at some point. He's still only acting. So he recused himself from this investigation. Okay, so then it falls to the deputy U.S. attorney for New York. That's Robert Kuzami. All wow. you compliance officers there say, <laughs> oh, Kuzami? Wait a minute. Yeah. Wasn't he the head of enforcement at the SEC? Yes, he was. But prior to that, Robert Kuzami was the general counsel for the Americas to Deutsche Bank which is the bank that if there are any bank fraud allegations with the Trump organization, I suspect Deutsche Bank is going to come up because that's the only bank that is doing business with the Trump organization these days. Um, So my first question is, is Kusami somehow compromised here? I don't know. But if there were any allegations of money laundering between Russia and the Trump organization, in all likelihood, Deutsche Bank's name would come up. And now we have um, Robert Kuzami somehow involved in investigating whatever it is that Michael Cohen has been involved in. Um, so yeah, that's where we are. And I think we've barely scratched the surface. We haven't even gotten into the delicacy of the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, conducting a raid on, a, on, a, on an attorney, which Tom and, and Volkov, you know, you guys probably would know better than me. But I just I think that we are nearing the end game. And when you look at how this is consuming the president and all other legislative business, I think is going to come to a halt fairly soon. Um, you really have to wonder like, you know, where, how, how do we go from here and how does he survive this? And I don't know how he does. By all out war with Russia. Yeah. Or North Korea. But uh, before we get to that war, Jonathan, from the, from the UK perspective, uh, observing these machinations uh, from across the pond, does that uh, impact uh, the UK on two levels? One, at the political level of Theresa May, I would have to assume the answer is yes, if only because you don't know which way the wind is blowing at any time of the particular day. But dropping down to a level that you work at, which are the UK regular, regulators, the professional uh, UK um, uh, uh class of government workers that enforce laws that we've been talking about today, laws like the Bribery Act. Do the political winds of America affect that, or is it uh, simply onward through the fog? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. I suppose I've almost got a foot in two camps. I guess 70%-ish of our client base is, uh, is U.S. corporations. So, so we obviously see these issues more prevalent uh, in their affairs rather than those affairs of those EU domestic corporations that we act for. I think that your characterization is correct. I mean, I know from speaking with, you know, domestic EU corporations, they've always thought that it's very difficult to judge the way the wind is blowing in the US. You know, there's continual criticism about the way in which it's often perceived to be an insider network. You know, people will look at things like the FCPA top 10 actions and see a disproportionate number of French companies there or a disproportionate number of German uh, corporations there. So there's always that perception that the US system is 
uh, more turbulent than the EU regulatory system, and that, in addition, EU or non-US corporations are further disadvantaged, you know, because they don't have the connections, because they don't have the the lobbying dollars. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, whilst ever, you know, Trump had said, I'm going to drain the swamp, the role of paid lobbyists is over, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think anybody in Europe ever believed that shtick. Michael Volkov, I've been wanting to ask you about the search warrant which was delivered on Michael Cohen. Uh, now seems like ages ago, but I think it was uh, literally one week ago. Mike, uh, you've been a former, you've been a prosecutor, and so have some experience. What does it take, or why would the Department of Justice issue a subpoena for records and, and go actually have a raid on a lawyer's office? Well, I this is actually uh, it's a great series of events and. And, you know, to me, there's a real there's so much media coverage of this and so many people talking about it that it really I ended up writing about it and doing my own podcast about it because we've got to focus on what is true, what's exaggerated and what is outright false um, as you look at an issue like this. First off, as a federal prosecutor, I can tell you that raiding a lawyer's office who is the, and this is the important point, Tom, is who is a subject of a criminal investigation, meaning that their conduct, not their client's conduct, their conduct is uh, being investigated by the grand jury. So, um, and and their lawyers can engage in conduct outside of providing uh, legal services, or they can sometimes use their legal services to further a criminal scheme, and then you're talking about the crime fraud exception. But that's not really, I think, what's at issue here. Here we have a guy, Michael Cohen, who has a few clients, one being President Trump, one being another individual who he settled another sort of romantic type of situation. And today we learned uh, that Sean Hannity was his mysterious third client. And that's it. He has no other clients. And as the government made clear, the uh, bulk of his activity is just as a businessman, not as a lawyer, but as a businessman. So what happened is, and you can rest assured and, you know, I know Bob Mueller very well, and you can rest assured that he followed uh, guidelines and requirements to the T, because that's what he likes to do. And he came upon evidence somehow. He came upon evidence in his investigation that did not relate to the Russia matter, but but related to potential criminal activity involving Michael Cohen. So he refers it out of the special counsel's investigation and refers it to Rod Rosenstein, who in turn... Uh, refers it to the Southern District of New York. Um, And the U.S. attorney there takes over this matter several months ago. That's a key point. Several months before the raids actually occurred. During that time, they uh, apparently got uh, issued subpoenas for information uh, relating to Michael Cohen's email accounts. 
Uh, unsurprisingly, none of the contacts that he had by email were with President Trump. Uh, Trump supposedly doesn't email. But nonetheless, based upon that uh, uh, experience, they were able to, and the investigation, they were able to figure out what the nature of his practice is. And so on April 9th, 2018, they executed search warrants at his office, his hotel room, uh, which was at the Lowe's Plaza, and his family, uh, he and his family were staying, his apartment or residence, where, which was undergoing renovation, a safety deposit box, and all of his electronic devices, including his uh, computers, telephones, whatnot. So now, um, what's going on here is that this is, and I don't mean to belittle this, but it's a run-of-the-mill corruption criminal investigation. A couple of interesting facts. The criminal investigation is being handled by the Public Corruption Office in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So there's going to be involvement either with Trump or potential government figures in New York, or there's a business that he has involvement uh, in Chicago, which we'll talk about this. But we don't know the full scope of the investigation. So all of a sudden, uh, this investigation uh, results in the FBI doing a search warrant. Now, why didn't they subpoena the documents? The reason they didn't subpoena the documents and had to execute a search warrant was, and this information came out later, they had information from two witnesses that he was in the process of destroying documents. And in that situation, when somebody's in the process of destroying documents, even going to the server level and destroying them to make sure there was no record of them, even when, he, when you're doing that, they had to move quickly. And quickly they did move. Um, to execute a search warrant on Monday, is uh, usually not a typical thing in law enforcement because that means they have to work some over the weekend to get ready. Um, so you usually see search warrants executed on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. So he, uh, so they executed the search warrant for that process. And I'm not going to take you through uh, all the requirements, but suffice it to say that there's a lengthy internal process that you have to go through before you can get uh, a search warrant for a lawyer's office. And a lot of people take a look at the submission you're going to have, and you can rest assured that the judicial officer who approved it looked at it very carefully as well. But that's kind of the background that led up to this um, uh, in terms of the uh, search warrants. So, Mike, after a search warrant is delivered and the materials are removed by the FBI or, or uh, other uh, law enforcement unit, uh, what happens to the materials to assure there's no violation of privilege to the extent it exists after the uh, search warrant is executed? So this is what's called uh, – it's called you, – you set up a search team that consists of a privilege team or taint team, and I don't want to use taint after, you know, Jim Comey's uh, interview on national television last night because it sort of has different repercussions. So let's call it the privilege team. The privilege team has uh, agents and lawyers assigned to it who have nothing to do with the underlying investigation. Their job simply is to go through 
the documents and try to um, determine, and it's pretty easy to be honest with you. It's not that hard a process. You look at a document, you put it in the no, no privilege pile, you put it in the potentially privileged pile, and then you have a third pile, which is this definitely looks like it's privilege. Um, so in that situation, what you do uh, is the privilege team goes through everything and nothing gets shared with the underlying team until it clears that process. And a detailed record is kept of each uh, document they review, every text they review, everything that they review so that you know it's going to be challenged by the defense attorneys and you know that a judge, you're going to have a Fourth Amendment suppression motion and uh, challenging the nature of the search so you document everything that you can in terms of that. But let me back up for one second before, and I, I did go over this really quickly, but before you can actually execute the search warrant, you have to show in an application, in a form that's within the Justice Department, that you've considered alternatives to search warrants, like a, a subpoena. And in this case, um, here we had evidence that the uh, defendant was destroying documents. It has to be authorized by the U.S. Attorney or the Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Division, and you have to have it, there has to be consultation with the uh, criminal division, and you have to spell out all the procedures that you're going to use uh, in terms of conducting the search and to making sure that you're not going to look at privileged documents. Now, uh, after this occurred, after this, the seizure occurred, uh, Cohen and Trump's lawyers filed a motion for a temporary restraining order claiming that they had thousands to millions of documents that were privileged. And what has happened as a result of the court hearing so far is that the judge has been unimpressed by that claim uh, since we found out that there are only three clients that Mr. Cohen has. And apparently uh, there's not so much that is involved with the Trump organization, apparently. So there may be thousands and that's about it. Um, but there's no hundreds of thousands uh, of documents, of privileged documents. So um, the judge uh, apparently denied the, the TRO request, but did require the government to make a copy of all the documents and provide a, cop, a set to Trump's uh, lawyers, as well as, you know, to the extent they apply to Trump and to Cohen's lawyers. Now, most of the stuff like the computers and the phones, those weren't actually sees what they do is mirror those, you know, take a copy of it electronically. So they already have all that. It's really just, they took 10 boxes supposedly of documents that they would have to copy and give, uh, give to them. And, uh, and then the process will continue from there. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, but in the government's filing in response to the TRO, what was interesting was that they confirmed, obviously, there is a criminal investigation against Mr. Cohen. And I can tell you from my expectation and the way this thing looks right now, uh, they have a lot of prosecutors on it. They have a lot of agents on it. Uh, he is, as on Saturday Night Live, they said uh, his code name is uh, Dead Man Walking. Um, 
he is looking at wire fraud charges, uh, bank fraud charges, illegal campaign contributions. And by the way, the scope of this is absolutely broader than the Stormy Daniels, the Barbara McDougal, you know, hush money top type payments. Uh, there's a whole area of inquiry related to uh, Cohen had a taxi medallion business. He was working with Ukrainians uh, who run a taxi business in Chicago. He had used some of the taxi medallions as security for various loans to banks and has been borrowing a, a lot of money from various banks. And I think there's going to be questions as to bank fraud that goes beyond the allegation of him using his home equity line to supposedly pay uh, Stormy Daniels $130,000. So um, what is clear to me is that contrary to uh, President Trump's tweet and uh, speaking truth to power, the attorney-client privilege is nowhere near dead. If anything, I think this judge's ruling shows that the attorney-client privilege is alive and well, uh, but when attorneys engage in criminal behavior, they don't have immunity, and nor can they necessarily hide behind privileged documents uh, to the extent those privileged documents may involve furthering some kind of criminal scheme. So that's what we're looking at here. But it's very clear that Mr. Cohen's activities, you know, maybe a tenth to a core, you know, to, you know, like an eighth related to uh, legal services, whereas the bulk of it appears to be business activities and consulting services that he provided. So would it be, un would it be fair to say it's really separate and apart from the focus of the Mueller investigation and that's why it was referred out? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, now we never we never can tell, like, uh, you know, just to show my age, we never thought that the Iran that, you know, the Iran deal was going to connect to the Contras in Central America until we found out that money that was generated from arms sales was sent to the Contras. Right. And all of a sudden we had two TV shows that were brought together right now from what it looks like we do not have Cohen involved in the um, in the Mueller investigation in the Russia activities. Now, what's weird is that as this case, as this incident blew up, uh, McClatchy and a couple of other press reports said that Mueller had evidence that Cohen was in Prague uh, in 2016, supposedly meeting with an important Russian official which supposedly had something to do with the um, activities uh, relating to the uh, hack and the release of the Democratic National Committee documents. But I, uh, I you know, that is yet to be proven. And I think, uh, you know, we never get leaks that occur from the Mueller group. They right. don't leak. They've never leaked. So I don't, until Mueller says something, I don't know that it's true yet. Because the only people who are leaking right now are the defense lawyers and witnesses and certain and people who have an axe to grind. So well, that, be very careful. Yeah, that's really an important point. You've said that several times. I've heard you say that 
on uh, your podcast uh, around the Mueller investigation, Mike, and I've heard other journalists, or not other journalists, you're not a journalist, but I've heard journalists say the same thing. And when they talk about leakers, they make clear that these leaks are not coming from the prosecutor, and they're not coming from Mueller's staff, and they're coming from, as you you uh, listed, the, the three groups, and that you obviously have to consider the source of the leaks, which we don't know at this right. point. But it's it's not the prosecutor. So who would want to leak that he has gone to Prague and why? It's it's a fascinating, you know, uh, speculation. Yeah. It mind. could be that there's, you know, look, there are a lot of people who don't like Michael Cohen. And so there's plenty of people who will make certain claims and, you know, try to go to the press about it. But, you know, I uh, that's why I say everything. you got to be really careful with what's coming out. I can tell you from working with Bob Mueller, from knowing him, I know what he did. He brought everybody together and he said, these are the rules. If you don't follow them, I'm going to, you know, have you leave. But, you know, the integrity of our work depends upon our not uh, leaking anything. And he, and I'm sure he spoke to the agents to make it clear. But the fact that there have not been leaks shows you the ability to which he can command respect and that people are committed to him and uh, work with integrity uh, because of they understand the importance of what they're doing, but also out of respect to him as a leader. And uh, so I, uh, to me, it's a, it's a pretty impressive group. It's, it's hard to watch this sort of assault on Mueller's integrity uh, as, uh, because I, I know him quite well. And uh, if there's anybody that uh, I would trust in this situation, it's him. Uh, and, and I think he'll be, in the end, I do think truth will win, win out. Uh, I do have to say that uh, we have to take one moment, though, Tom. I mean, Sean Hannity's appearance as the third client is one of the most hysterical, uh, hysterical things uh, that Michael Cohen was actually providing legal advice, you know, Michael Cohen went to a fourth tier law school and the fact that Sean Hannity, who probably has more money than most people in New York, is going to hire Michael Cohen as his lawyer is just almost laughable, um, considering who he could hire, you know, in New York uh, and could afford it. So we don't know the full scope of it, but just on the face of it, it was just a hilarious turn of events today, I thought. Amen to that. Mike Volkoff, do you have a rant for us today? Well, I do have a rant, uh, and it was caused by a Wall Street Journal report today that somehow the first quarter 2018 stats are out for FCPA enforcement, and lo and behold, they're low. And is this the beginning of the end of FCPA enforcement? What's the explanation? This, you know, the sky is falling. And I don't know how many years, Tom, you and I have gone through FCPA enforcement claims. And the one thing we've learned is that these types of ideas or trends or whatever turn out to usually be wrong. And uh, the fact that these things even get written and are argued to the public are just uh, ridiculous in my view. Uh, particularly given the fact that we've had a record number of disclosures of investigations in the past year. We've had, um, you know, not a lot of declinations that have come out. We've had some. 
And it's clear that what's going on is, uh, I think, as you said uh, before in another podcast, that Dan Kahn, the head of the FCPA unit, has said there's been no change in his job uh, since the Trump administration took over. So I see the same thing. And, uh, you know, people have to just uh, respect the professional work that's being done um, and don't look for trends when there are no trends. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us today? You bet I do. Today is uh, (laughs) April 12th, 11 games into the regular baseball season. And last night was the second game between the Evil Empire and my and Matt's Boston Bean Eaters. And we had our first bench-clearing brawl. Some claim it might have been inspired by a brawl earlier in the day involving the Colorado Rockies, but let me set the scene for you here. The batter bunts the ball towards third base. A force-out throw is made to second base where Yankees' Tyler Austin slides in Cobb, Ty Cobb style, spikes up, and spikes the Red Sox' Brock Holt on the lower leg. Flash forward a few innings later, and Red Sox reliever Joe Kelly misses on a warning shot and then connects with his target, Mr. Austin, thus clearing the benches. So if we have these overgrown kids getting paid millions of dollars for playing a game that some would say they play for free, I guess they cannot get psyched up enough for each of the 162 games that they require an archaic code of honor to get them going. Hockey has its fights. Football has its debilitating and life-threatening hits. The NBA has flagrant fouls, so I guess this is sport and this is how the game is played. All I can say is that there are 151 more games to play, 17 more between the Bo Sox and the Yanks. So uh, today's Thursday. Can't wait to see what comes next. Jonathan Armstrong, you're sitting here in Houston, Texas, Texas today. Do you have a uh, U.S. or even Texas-inspired rant? I have a U.S.-inspired rant. Yes, thank y'all, as I guess I have to say here. Um, yeah, mine is, um, there's a great book by a political commentator who used to be uh, a, a um, Princess Diana's dresser called Peter York, and, and it's about um, false authenticity. So as a general rule, uh, uh, the claim that people make about them being authentic is in, is in inverse proportion to the amount of authenticity they possess. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and there's a great example of that in the uh, Wall Street Journal on Tuesday. And it's about politicians. And in one uh, election, the majority of the candidates are seen to be driving between appointments. And apparently it's become completely prevalent. Most politicians worth their salt uh, talk not to camera, they keep their eyes fixed on the road, but they talk about authentic things whilst driving authentically on an authentic commute. But as this article says, authenticity isn't uh, what it seems. And uh, for example, one um, politician drives her Volvo sedan, which of course represents safety and uh, placidness and security, uh, to uh, a meeting. But uh, the camera catches the sight of six post-it notes that are taped to the dashboard, which are her spontaneous thoughts that she's given in this film. And she goes into a press conference as soon as the commercial appears. And the first question is, uh, did 
did you know it was Distracted Driving Awareness Month uh, as people are talking about these taped-up notes? There's another guy who decides he wants to be seen to be driving to an event in his Jeep Wrangler, but he's not clear that he can drive and speak authentically at the same time. So he has a friend tow his Jeep Wrangler onto the back of a low loader, and he's filmed driving around his hometown, but the Jeep is stationed on a low loader as he talks. Uh, One of my favourites is a guy who wants to talk about his father's job at a Ford factory. And so he wants to be seen to be driving uh, an old Ford pickup truck to reminisce and say that he's still loyal to, uh, to Ford in this, particular, in, in this particular place where he's standing. All well and good, you might say. He is seen to be driving this old white Ford pickup truck as he talks. But unfortunately, uh, the opposition in that election found uh, Facebook posts from his campaign manager, which said, quote, I am in need of an old Ford pickup truck for a few hours. No Chevys or GMCs need apply. So again, his claim to authenticity seems, uh, seems not to have uh, established. And, and I think, I just wonder if this is a thing of our age. You know, people have seen uh, Trump's claims to authenticity and to be, you know, the local guy around the corner. And are people just trying to mirror that uh, and is the social media world going to catch out those claims and uh, and the truth that's behind them, as it has in all these cases? Matt Kelly, we've got uh, some pretty high bars for you to eclipse. Uh, do you have a rant for us today? I, I do. I'm sticking with uh, politics this time around for the rant. Uh, I would like to complain about uh, Missouri Governor Eric Greetens. I believe you pronounce his name that way. Uh, but uh, Governor Greetens had been indicted and was accused of um, taking a photo of a woman who was not his wife in a state of undress against her will. He was having an affair with her, and he took this photo basically to blackmail her for her silence, and then he was indicted on that in Missouri. Um, and then this week, out comes a lawmaker's investigatory committee report that shows this was much worse, that Governor Greeton was um, abusing this woman, like sexually assaulted her, you know, as much as we may disapprove of what the president has or has not done with various women, such as Stormy Daniels. She's been very clear. She was never assaulted by him. She was never harassed by him. That is not the case with Governor Greeton's. It is much worse than that. He did, according to this committee's report, he did assault this woman. He did harass her. He did threaten her. Um, and so now there are calls for Governor Greeton either to resign, which clearly he should, or the Republican lawmakers in Missouri who do control the state legislature in Missouri, uh, that they will move to impeach him. Um, clearly, this is where a political institution, in this case the state of Missouri, has to put its ethical values to the test. Uh, Governor Greeton's has already been indicted. He's already been accused. This was a not any political um, hit job here because the committee that investigated him was five Republicans and two Democrats. Uh, and yet they came out with this awful report. Uh, so clearly, if the Republicans are serious about good conduct in the state of Missouri, they should impeach Governor Greetings if he does not resign. 
And Governor Greetens, by the way, has said that this is completely fabricated. This is a political witch hunt. He's being pursued. Uh, I'm surprised he has not started talking about uh, some sort of deep state conspiracy in the state capital in Missouri or something like that. Um, but I do think that this might be a dry run that Donald Trump's people are watching to see, could Donald Trump pursue a similar sort of burn it to the ground to see if I survive strategy? I'm not quite sure how much Governor Greetens took inspiration from Donald Trump, who's already been saying that so far, and, you know, taking that strategy, um, and how much they might be looking to see if a legislative branch really will have the guts to kick Governor Greetens out of office. Uh, because clearly people will start drawing parallels between what's going on in Missouri and what is going on with the Trump administration. Um, I hope Governor Greetens will have some shred of conscience and resign. I think he will resign after he grandstands for a few days and realizes his position is no longer tenable. But it is just a fascinating political scandal going on in Missouri, and it just calls out how difficult it is in these moments these days for our political institutions to hold true to those values that we supposedly believe in, um, that we have inscribed on statues all over the place. They actually do mean something. Sometimes that means you're going to have to take a hit for your political party to hold up your values. And we'll see if that happens in Missouri, and we'll, we'll probably see if it happens in Washington. So I'd actually like to, to join, but I, I'd like to go in a different direction because I'd like to give a shout-out. I'd like to give a shout-out to the invertebrate class. For those of you who may have forgotten your high school biology, invertebrates don't have spines. They have no backbones. And I think it's time that we recognize that and recognize them as a class. And as their latest addition and newest star, I would point to Paul Ryan, uh, who after some four months of denying that uh, he was going to quit, run away, uh, and leave the House of Representatives speaker slot, announced yesterday he was doing exactly that. Uh, he's not even serving out his term. He is going. No resigning to pursue oppor other opportunities. No, I'm going to spend more time with my family. Uh, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to leave the third most powerful position in the United States. I'm number three to be in line for president. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, the greatest example of recent spinelessness in a politician, Paul Ryan. So, Paul, thank you for reminding us all about high school biology. Well, this has been a great, great, great Everything Compliance. It's been great having Jonathan uh, in the country to uh, visit with us, joined by uh, Matt, Mike, and Jay. So till next time, this is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Thanks for listening. Hello again, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance. As you can tell in this podcast, we have a ton of fun putting these podcasts on, and we hope you had a ton of fun listening. Thanks again for joining us for this episode, and I hope you'll join us in a couple of weeks again when we post yet another episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.